This episode of The Amazing Nerd Show is sponsored by Podcorn. Christian, we know life as a podcaster isn't easy. Monetizing your small independent podcast can lead to nothing but heartbreak and frustration. We didn't even know the first place to start and how to approach these companies. But then we found Podcorn, a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Damn it, with Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work that you do. And Christian, I love their mission statement. To give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. Click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Podcorn, connecting unique voices to unique brands. Nerds, it's time to suit up and nerd up. Launching badass rockabilly track. Now queuing explosions to go off as you walk away. Time to save the world with some wrestling, video games, movies, horror, and more. Launching ANS in 3, 2, one. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, this week we've got a jam-packed show. We'll be breaking down the season finale of Loki and talking the latest episode of The Bad Batch. We also have film reviews for Black Widow and Fear Street 1978. And of course, we got to talk some wrestling with AEW's part one of Fighter Fest. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. And for the rest of the month of July, if we choose to read your review on the show, we'll send you an amazing Nerd Show t-shirt from TeePublic, as long as you live in the United States. Yeah, every review helps support the show, so we definitely appreciate it if you are able to give us one. If you're on Apple Podcasts, like most of our listeners make sure to leave a five-star review and we'll see it and read it on the show of course let's get into the news every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum we're not mild-mannered reporters we're mere podcasters with opinions well, first up, it looks like the nerds are taking over the Emmys. So this past weekend, a lot of Nerdum's favorite shows were recognized with Emmy nominations in some major categories, really just highlighting how much quality storytelling is being done in some of our favorite genre universes. Between WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Marvel nabbed 28 Emmy nominations. WandaVision was nominated for Outstanding Limited Series. Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen both received nods for Outstanding Lead Actor and Actor in a limited series, and Katherine Hahn was nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a limited series. Don Cheadle was nominated for The Falcon and Winter Soldier for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series, even though he appeared on screen for about a minute. I mean, it was an awesome scene, though. In a galaxy far, far away, the cast and crew of The Mandalorian received 24 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Drama Series. Giancarlo Esposito was nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actor, and Timothy Oliphant and Carl Weathers were both nominated for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series. 
Also in the Outstanding Drama Series category, The Boys and the now-canceled Lovecraft Country were both nominated. And actually, HBO Max's Lovecraft Country was nominated for 18 Emmys, including Lead Actress in a Drama Series for Journey Smollett, uh, Outstanding Actor in a Drama Series for uh, King the Conqueror himself, Jonathan Majors, Outstanding Supporting Actress in Anna June Ellis, and Outstanding Supporting Actor in Michael K. Williams. So, man, I'm wondering if HBO Max is starting to regret their decision to cancel the show. Um, but anyway, um, I don't remember the last time I actually cared about the Emmys, but I'll definitely be watching this year. It's just really nice to see some of our favorite shows getting like some Emmy love. Well, we all know that the real awards are at the end of the year when we give our thoughts on what was the best show. But here at the Emmys, a lot of the nerd shows are winning out, really. I mean, it's crazy. I definitely think it's going to be a hard choice for the Emmys and a hard choice for us as well when we do the best of TV at the end of the year. No, and there's tons of like series that haven't even come out yet. So Exactly. Because I, I think we're still getting another season of Boys this year. And then we mm -hmm. also have What If coming out. And then um, Umbrella Academy is going to be coming out too. So Oh yeah, I forgot all about that. Up next, it looks like WandaVision's Matt Shakeman is helming the next movie of Star Trek. So Paramount has landed its next Star Trek filmmaker. Uh, hot off of getting a whole lot of nominations for WandaVision, showrunner Matt Shakeman has been given the captain's chair to direct the next Star Trek film. The yet untitled feature is expected to begin production as early as next spring. The studio has reportedly finalized a script and J.J. Abrams is on board as producer. There is no plot details currently and it's unclear what timeline they'll be following. Yeah, so I'm really wondering what direction they end up going with Star Trek. Um, I didn't mind the J.J. films, but it always felt like something was missing from them. They mm -hmm. never felt like, I don't know, Star Trek to me. <laughs> they were good, like, action-adventure films, but just, I don't know, something always felt off. As a bad bad metaphor, it was like they had all the right ingredients. It just, you know, it was missing something. It was just like an added bit of spice that it needed to actually make a difference in what it was trying to accomplish. I honestly... <laughs> I was watching the last one, the, uh, what is it, Into the Darkness or? No, Beyond. Oh, Beyond. The there we go. Uh -huh. I was watching Beyond, and I think part of it is, like, they're, like, off the ship so much, it feels like. And, like, I, I don't know, in the original, like, Star Trek, you know, films and series, they spend so much time on the fucking ship that, like, I don't know, them just being, like, out and about, and I, I don't know. It just, it, I think that might be part of it, honestly. If that makes any sense. I'm not a Trekkie, so <laughs> maybe that's not at all. It just, I don't know. It feels, it always felt wonky to me. You, you, so you're saying you wanted more politics inside the spaceship? I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it just never felt like Star Trek to me. And I'm, like I said, I'm not a Trekkie at all. But, you know, I love me some, like, Next Generation. I really enjoyed the Picard series. Um, Picard felt like Star Trek. But they also weren't on the ship. <laughs> so I guess my argument is completely fucking moved. Honestly, I spent a good portion of my middle school years watching like the, the original Star Trek on like VHS tapes just so I could watch all the like cuts to the bad stunt actors and uh -huh. stuff that looked absolutely nothing like them. That's that's most of my experience with Star Trek. So I'm not a big Trekkie. So either. You're, you're an asshole is what you're saying. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like I said, I'm a more of a next generation guy. Mm -hmm. So I I did applaud like the way they tried to like 
keep everything in continuity with the timeline, mm-hmm. with the new films and everything, like making it like like an alternate reality. And if I'm getting this all wrong, don't fucking DM us. I apologize. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't like this isn't my religion. So, but like, you know, I, I, I gave them credit for trying to like at least please everyone. But mm-hmm. like watching that last film, there's like a scene where the younger Spock finds out that the older Spock dies. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it just felt so unnecessary to me. Well, I hear a lot of praise for a lot of the shows that they've been producing for Star Trek. So I I gotta imagine they have some idea maybe where to go at this point with the success of those. Yeah, but a lot of times, like, you know, the, the, the film studios feel like they know more than, like, the TV studios. Oh, yeah. Well, we've so, seen that. <laughs> um, like I said, Picard, I don't know. Picard was really able to, like, capture something that made mm. me feel like, you know, oh, this is definitely a Star Trek series. And that might have just been, like, the fact that they had Patrick Stewart. <laughs> but J.J.'s films, they're just, like, too almost, like, I don't know, polished or... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. what I can't put my finger on it, so I'll stop rambling. It's the lens flare. It's the lens flares for sure. <laughs> I actually don't mind the lens flares. And there's a lot of them, but I don't mind. Well, up next, it looks like the Dexter revival brings back Deborah Morgan. So, yes, hopefully this means they're just retconning the entire last season or so. I would be fine with that. Uh, But there is definitely a chance this might just be a flashback or dream sequence. Uh, I believe John Lithgow just came out and said that, you know, his return as the Trinity Killer, which was announced last week, uh, is just a flashback sequence. So maybe that's the case with Carpenter's character. I mean, they both did die in the series, Uh, but I would be fine either way, honestly. (laughs) There's really no plot details right now uh just kind of what we already know that dexter's returning to showtime as a limited series of 10 episodes sometime in late fall so you would be okay with it being like a soap opera twist with her coming no i'm just just fucking act like the last season didn't happen (laughs) oh okay like i don't want her to return from the dead (laughs) <laughs> I just want them to pretend that the show didn't start sucking the last couple seasons uh-huh. and just, you know, wash it from everyone's memory. All right. That makes more sense. So actually, Christian, that does it for the news this week. Um, we do have some news about this little series known as Loki that had its season finale uh, this past week. Um, but we're going to go ahead and we're going to save those news stories for some serious speculation uh, in our breakdown of the season finale. But first, we watched a movie this week, Damon. That's right. The MCU finally headed back to theaters and we both saw Black Widow. Warning, spoiler alert. Spoilers for Black Widow ahead. You have been warned. Why do you always do that thing? Do what? The thing you do when you're fighting. And the, like the, this, this thing that you do when you look at that when you're fighting with the arm and the hair and you do like a fighting pose. It's a, yeah. it's a fighting pose. You're a total poser. You're not a poser. <laughs> Natasha confronts the darker parts of her ledger when a dangerous conspiracy with ties to her past arises. Pursued by a force that will stop at nothing to bring her down, Natasha must deal with her history as a spy and the broken relationships left in her wake long before she became an Avenger. 
This was directed by Kate Shortland and stars Scarlett Johansson and Florence Pugh. So right off the top, I gotta say, I actually enjoyed this film a lot more than I expected. Not that I thought the trailers didn't look good. It was mostly due to the fact that like we got two years worth of them. So I already felt like I saw the entire film. Um, also, the concept just felt anticlimactic to me. I mean, it's great that Natasha's like finally getting her story told, but it just kind of sucks that we already know her fate. But man, I thought Black Widow was a fun action film that had me a lot more emotionally invested than I expected. So the film starts off with a brief glimpse of Natasha's history. Like from Ohio to Budapest, you get a sense of what shapes the person she eventually becomes, and it leaves you wanting more. I mean, the Ohio scene in particular that starts off the film is really well crafted. I mean, the heartbreak of being taken away from her, the only family she ever knows, and then you end up with the guilt of Budapest and everything that happens there, like what she has to do to free herself from her past. I mean. It just resonates through the entire film. It goes a long way also to add layers to a character that unfortunately we're just getting to know now. And I just kept on thinking like how much weight this film would have added to both of the past two Avenger films if it would have come out in proper sequence. I mean, especially making her sacrifice even more moving, but I guess better late than ever. As far as the action, they didn't like reinvent the wheel, um, but it did have its fair share of like breathtaking scenes, with the prison break being the most memorable as far as action goes. I did rub up against certain sequences that felt too unbelievable for two unpowered beings to survive. I mean, it's one thing if it's Cap or Spidey like falling from great heights or getting up from insane car accidents, but these sisters aren't like physically enhanced to like endure such punishment. Uh, that you know, didn't ruin my experience though, because this film's strength is really rooted in its characters. At its core, it's about four damaged people whose only sense of belonging and connection came from like when they were together. That small period of time acting like a family meant so much to them that it drives each one of them to stand up to the demons of their past at the end of the film. I mean, Florence Pugh, David Hubert, and Rachel Wise are wonderful in this movie and a welcome addition to the MCU. Hands down, my favorite moment in this movie is the dinner scene on the pig farm, watching these characters reunite. The range of emotions each one shows is impressive. I mean, they're able to tell the story of this mock family unit in a way that just, I don't know, resonates. You're left wanting to see more. And Florence Pugh at the end of this film feels like a worthy successor to Scarlett Johansson if they do choose to go that route. And hopefully they'll mean that we'll get a little more of this like family dynamic down the road. Um, the third act is a bit rushed, and even though I like complain about the same things in the Disney Plus series, it really made me appreciate them a little more. But with that being said, I do wish we had more time with the Red Room and the main villain. They do a great job of telling you how awful both are, but they don't really show you too much. I do, however, think there's potential down the line to maybe revisit it, though. Also, Taskmaster is just a complete misuse of a fun, interesting comic book character. For the most of the film, like, they're a glorified henchman whose silence makes them feel more like a unrelenting force of nature than the pirate boot, like, wearing mercenary that I've grown to love. I did, however, like the twist and the backstory they gave the character. I just wish it was attached to someone else. The Taskmaster identity just felt so unnecessary, but I understand you have to sell toys to kids, well, and nerds like me. 
So with all that being said, I do feel like at the end of the film, they stuck their landing, hero pose and all, in satisfying fashion. Uh, I'm glad Marvel told this story. Just next time, maybe don't wait so damn long. I would love to eventually dive deeper into some of the darker themes that they were playing with in this film. Um, and even if they don't resurrect Natasha, they could always use her sister to tell that story if they want to. But anyway, I'm gonna go ahead and give Black Widow a solid B. I think they did a great job of making me appreciate Natasha and her sacrifice even more, but they also left me mourning her once again. So thanks a lot, Marvel. I think similarly to Damon, I came into the film with probably lower expectations than I would have if the film came out maybe even like a year ago. That being said, I was taken aback by what I actually found myself enjoying versus what I expected to get. Most like what my co-host has said here, I too felt like the family dynamic between Natasha, the Red Guardian, Melina, and Yelena is outstanding. The character work and performances all around just made me smile near every damn back and forth moment that they had, where I honestly usually find more to praise and action sequences and cinematography, the main attraction of this film in my eyes is just how well these characters interact. You can't help but fall in love with this family and it definitely got me excited for the future with Florence Pugh as I definitely believe she will be taking over the role of Black Widow. My negatives for this film are the things I expected to enjoy more actually. The action sequences themselves felt lazier in comparison to a lot of what we have seen come from Marvel over the last few years. Even some of the best fighting moments in this were plagued with poor shot selection and heavy cutting to cover up their stunt actors. I was telling Damon this off mic and when my mom dragged me to go see Fast and Furious 9, I was surprised by how much better the fight choreography was in that movie in comparison to Black Widow. So I feel like I was let down on that regard, mostly because when we get characters known for martial prowess, I guess I expect better choreography from it altogether. And I also agree that they went a little bit too superhero-y with this film, meaning like there's just way too many times where our characters feel like they're just impervious to damage in general. When it comes to Drakov and the Taskmaster, I do think that there is a lot left on the table for them to explore if they want to. I definitely think there's some options to go with, especially since even at the beginning of this film, they explained that Drakov was a character that's supposed to be dead. And, you know, he survived one explosion in the past. There's no reason to believe that he couldn't survive this helicopter or even come back as a mangled style character, because I definitely think there's a lot more for Yelena to do with with the Red Room in the future if they want to go down that road. But in this film itself, they are a bit lackluster as they are now. I, I definitely was hoping for a lot more out of Taskmaster, just like Damon was. While the character being stoic didn't really bother me too much, I definitely thought they were going to hold on to this character to you know, spread out throughout the Marvel experience. Because like, how cool would it be to see Taskmaster go up against any of the other Avengers while they also use all the skills of the other ones? You know, it's just been cool to continue on with that. But, you know, maybe there's some option out there that we don't know. Maybe they'll take that skill or ability that Drakov's daughter has and, you know, give it to someone else. Who knows? It's Marvel, baby. Everything is possible. But, you know, for my grade, I'm giving this a solid B because the performances honestly just rocked. I felt like they weren't so strong. If I wasn't so into the family dynamic and so now interested in this new character, I definitely think I would have been giving this somewhere around a C plus as far as the cinematography and action goes. But I really do think that they caught lightning in a bottle here with this family and I'm ready to see what's next for Yelena. All right, Christian, Loki episode six for all time always has finally arrived. The season finale. Let's break it down. Warning spoiler alert. Spoilers for Marvel's Loki ahead. You have been warned. Same person. I mean, it's a little unnatural, but wow. He who remains. He who remains. 
She's still calling me that. Creepy. I like it. Damon, it's grand finale time as we have reached the man behind the curtain in Loki. We open up this week with voices from the MCU and time itself as historical moments from speeches play out and visually we see the you know, kind of like the physical manifestation of the timeline as the camera carries us from Earth to the castle that lives outside our timeline. Personally, I still got a lot of Quantum Realm vibes from this opening, but no actual mention of it happens in this episode. Yeah, while we're like traveling through the timeline, it does look like, you know, two separate universes are born. I don't know if you noticed that, but I thought that was interesting. It was just like two universes. I don't know if that means anything or if they're just like, oh, they'll get the point <laughs> if we just do two. <laughs> uh, so, but I did, I did note that. I thought they were going for that whole thing where it was like, you know, our universe is within an atom of another universe. Like, that's what I thought they were building up to, but then they just came to the castle. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Standing before the door to Sylvie and Loki's destiny, the two of them hesitate going in. This is what Sylvie has been, you know, kind of working towards her entire life, and it's clearly shaken her to finally reach her goal. But even though she claims she needs a moment before storming the castle, the door itself opens. I did enjoy this moment because it showed the weight of, you know, Sylvie's journey and how she got here and how she's basically been mm -hmm. living her entire life for this moment. So of course she's gonna like need time to reflect and you know emotionally prepare like you know actually reaching her goal. So I, I thought that was well played. No, I definitely think the last three episodes have shown off like Sylvie's like trying to grasp what it's like to not just go after her quest. But I mean, now that we're here at the end, yeah, mm -hmm. I think this was well handled. Inside, we're met by a jump scare from Miss Minutes announcing their arrival to the Citadel at the end of time. In what seems like a final stitch effort to stop these two from meeting their maker, Miss Minutes offers them a way out of all of this. She states that he who remains shall actually send them back to the timeline and make it so that both Lokis can coexist with one another in the same universe. Loki on this timeline would have actually won the Battle of New York and never died by the hands of Thanos, while Sylvie would have, you know, never had lost her actual childhood. While both did end up seeming tempted by this offer, uh, you know, of actually getting whatever they wanted, both Lokis decide not to give up on their quest for free will. So, I mean, they're definitely trying to establish here that Loki's, like, changed, like, having everything offered to him. Uh, like, mm -hmm. everything that he's, like, ever wanted and, like, being able to restrain himself and turn it down. But, like, at this moment, I still didn't believe him. Like, I still didn't fucking trust him. <laughs> <laughs> I still thought that, you know... At some point here, you know, during the finale, we would see Loki, like, maybe show his true colors. And it might just mm -hmm. be too much for him to resist and turn down. Exactly. All he wants is power. <laughs> Switching gears to the TVA, Ravana is seen trying to do some research on the creation of the TVA. Suddenly, after leaving the castle, Miss Minutes shows up here in Ravana's office, stating that she has completed compiling all the files. However, they're not the actual files that Ravana had asked for. Instead, he who remains has given her some reading to do on a subject that may pique her interest, but the audience is left to wonder what it may be. So I think it's instruction from you know and we haven't said it yet but Kang <laughs> you know basically is telling her what to do next that's my guess that makes sense I just because she used the temp pad and we know there was no way 
for that tempad to get there maybe she does have to take some weird like trap path to get there mm-hmm. i guess i don't know yeah well and she doesn't necessarily have to go to the castle to meet him you know True. especially knowing how everything plays out at the end moving on in the castle loki and sylvie enter a room with four statues three being the timekeepers we saw so far at the tva and a fourth statue destroyed on the floor this could be a nod to oracle a character that was apparently a secret timekeeper who also helps the fantastic four in the comics with fighting a version of kang's son um you know which led me to wonder if the timekeepers at one point had been living beings in this universe rather than the chuck e cheese robots we got couple episodes ago or this could just be another you know fun little comic book nod that they won't actually you know do anything with in the actual mcu so who knows while in this room he who remains actually unveils himself as not the evil version of loki as we all kind of guessed but as kang or at least a version of kang played by jonathan majors yes and he's crazy as all hell <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he's like almost giddy that they found him so i i, I mm. really love the performance here by jonathan majors and honestly i was kind of excited that all the little like you know easter eggs and breadcrumbs they were trying to use to like point us in this direction wasn't an actual like you know red herring this time like <laughs> you know all yes. the all our speculating <laughs> you know came true i mean it's fucking k no boners here <laughs> yeah it wasn't like a no show with like you know the whole mephisto situation you know, it, it, it's just keg, which is a good thing. Yes. <laughs> as far as Jonathan Majors goes in that scene, and I mean, throughout this entire episode, it actually, and this will be my last Wizard of Oz mention. I think <laughs> in it's all this fair game. I mean, like, they've been like choking us to death with the metaphor for like six like episodes now. So it's okay. Well, I was just going to say, I felt like his performance really reminded me a lot of Richard Pryor's from uh, The Wiz. I don't know if you ever got a chance to see that. It's been a long time. <laughs> a long time. But I, I I really dug the performance. Um, it was mm-hmm. not at all what I was expecting from the character. Yeah, I thought the performance was an interesting choice, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. King invites the two sword-drawn Lokis into his office. Um, Sylvie, not you know one to miss an opportunity at stabbing her arch foe, takes a swing at King and is easily dodged by you know King using what seems to be a superior tempad. Upon reaching the office, clearly outmatched by Kang's abilities, the two decide to actually hear him out. I'm glad that they showed off his powers here, you know, or at least gave us just a taste. Uh, because if you don't, you know, show the audience what he's capable of, it makes like no sense whatsoever why, you know, Sylvie wouldn't just stab him, you know, right off the bat. Yeah. So. <laughs> Before we actually do hear anything from Kang, we actually do go back to the TVA where Mobius arrives at Renslayer's office. Ravana stands her ground in this scene as she refuses to believe that her life's work was all for nothing. She attempts to call some guards to her aid, but Mobius informs her that they won't be coming. This is when we see B-15 in a random school being chased by, you know, fellow TVA agents. But this chase was all just a ploy for them to learn the truth about what they actually are, as B-15 shows them Ravana Renslayer before she joined the TVA as this school's principal. Here's a case of one of the breadcrumbs that I was talking about before actually paying off. We see Mobius holding up the pencil or pen, I'm not sure what it is, with the school's name on it, letting Mm -hmm. her know that he knows the truth. My question is, is since Renslayer has the pencil in her office, it seems like it's kind of like a souvenir. So does that mean she knew she was a variant all along? I don't know, because I mean, that would make sense. She doesn't seem shocked 
when she hears the news from um, that other agent that was spilling, you know, spilling out like that she had a past before this. So I don't I don't know. Maybe she does know. I have no idea. Yeah. So it, it, once again, we we're not quite sure, like how much she knows mm-hmm. and what she knows about. So because I kind of was left with the feeling over the last couple episodes that she was almost completely in the dark. But obviously, that's not the case at all. Returning to the castle now, um, Kang begins to tell them how he is the architect of everything that has you know, actually transpired throughout this show. He tells our Lokis that the reason they are unable to actually harm him is that he knows it all and actually slaps down a script onto his desk of everything that is supposed to happen. Right after that scene, in a kind of like parallel with Kang's speech about the journey meaning more than the destination in his grand scheme of everything, we get another moment with Ravana and Mobius as Ravana preaches on the facts of, you know, the ends justifying the means behind this big lie that is the TVA. We then get this kind of heartfelt moment between the two with, you know, Mobius questioning their friendship and Renslayer throwing it right back at him for not actually following through with her. All in the meanwhile, Renslayer actually opens up a portal, but unable to outmaneuver Renslayer, Mobius watches Ravana go through the portal, although we don't know where to just yet. Yeah, I do think she's a true follower of Kang at this point. She believes in their mission, especially since it's the only thing she's known her entire life. Um, you know, and she thinks what they're doing is righteous, even though she might not completely comprehend everything just yet. Makes me wonder what kind of principle she was before the TV. Oh, she was probably the worst, man. She would have had me in detention. I mean, all week long. <laughs> Going forward, we get our big explanation on how this timeline came to be from Kang. He explains how the multiverse war began as he was the scientist that discovered how to communicate with himself across multidimensional planes. At this time, every other version of himself made the same discovery, and so began a process of all the Kangs kind of getting to know one another and sharing their vast knowledge from each universe. But of course, not every version of himself embarked on learning about the multiverse for knowledge. No, some of them actually came to conquer. And so the multiverse exploded into war with all versions of Kang going at one another. But in this reality, as Kang tells it, there weren't actually any timekeepers that end up saving the day. The truth is that the version of Kang that we're speaking with in this episode actually found Eliath, which gave him the upper hand in destroying all the other Kangs and creating a stream timeline of his own so i thought they handled the exposition here extremely well and they've done that like through the entire series not just in this moment because i mean it's a lot to wrap your head around so they've been really like holding our hand throughout and you know for the most part i'm not lost yet so i mean i have to applaud them but mm-hmm. i mean it, it just it, everything tracks everything makes sense you know, he created the sacred timeline to end the war. You know, the TVA is created to control it from branching out to stop, like, the coming of the rest of the Kings. Um, you know, I'm wondering what version of himself, you know, we're talking to here. Um, I'm wondering if it's Immortus. In his little speech, there is a little reference to, like, some of his other aliases. Uh, I believe he says, like, the Conqueror. At one point, he says the Jerk. Um, but, yeah, it, it all kind of, I don't know, makes sense for this to be almost the Immortus version of the character. Since, like, he was all about, like, making sure all the other Kangs became him. 
And that seems mm -hmm. to be his goal of making sure that the TVA keeps on running, that there's someone to replace him, uh, if that makes any sense. Like, he he seeks to establish order in the universe, you know, by ruling it. So, it, it just, I don't know, it feels like it tracks with the Immortus version of himself, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm getting lost. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, the Immortus version is probably the worst version of Kang. So <laughs> he's a complete asshole. But now I'm wondering if we're going to get like, you know, Ramatut or uh, Iron Lad somewhere down the line also. Well, I definitely feel like they could do Iron Lad mm -hmm. at a certain point with the new Young Avengers whenever that starts yeah. up. With the speed that they've been like introducing them all in the MCU over mm -hmm. the past like year or so, that feels like it's happening sooner than later. So with the truth out there, Kang switches gears to why these two Lokis are here, why he guided them to this very moment. After millenniums of you know maintaining the sacred timeline with the help of the TVA, Kang is simply tired of it all. Kang has been keeping the timeline safe from you know all the other versions of himself, and after actually searching throughout time, came to the realization that for some reason, these two Lokis were the perfect combo to take over the TVA in his stead. So Sylvie and Loki are left with a choice. Claim the sacred timeline for themselves and rule over all letting Kang go to do whatever the hell he wants, or finish what they started in this show and kill Kang, allowing the multiverse to spring free and give all those in it free will. Though, if you kill Kang, it unleashes all his variants and will eventually start another multiversal war. So yeah, I mean, the choice is a real like philosophical like conundrum, like safety at the cost of free will or free will knowing that you're going to be going headfirst into just utter chaos. With two options here on the table that really kind of fit both Lokis for different reasons, Kang unveils one more revelation as a bang can be heard outside the castle, and he actually goes ahead and takes off his tempad here. That revelation being that he didn't tell the full truth here. You know, he knew everything up to a certain moment, and that moment has now passed. You know, now everything beyond that big bang is beyond his control. This kind of actually putting all the power into our Loki's hands in, you know, deciding the fate of the multiverse from here forward. Either it will be under the control of Loki and Sylvie, or it will be allowed to spring free into most likely chaos. I just love how exhilarated he gets when he realizes like he crossed over, you know, uh -huh. the point where he doesn't know what's going to happen next. Um, it was very much like, you know, a kid, you know, eating dessert for dinner. Um, just very childlike. And I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, just like uh, moving objects, not knowing how they're going to land and stuff exactly, like that. Exactly, right? Like he starts <laughs> to experiment, kind of. Great performance. While Sylvie clearly wants Kang's head, Loki is unsure if that's the right course of action. Sylvie springs into action and Loki is forced to stop her as he believes that Kang isn't lying about starting another multiversal war. Sylvie isn't convinced by either Kang or Loki, as she kind of throws the fact that before they even met, Loki wanted to rule over the TVA. This kind of ensues a fight where Sylvie, who has been on her own and unable to trust anyone, faces off with Loki 
A man who has spent his years deceiving everyone yet tries to turn honest here at the end of time. All before the man who remains and who believes always will remain even after the results of this conflict. It's a beautiful scene that shows how much this journey has kind of affected, you know, Sylvie while also changing Loki quite a bit. Well, and, you know, Kang does say you have to be changed by the journey to complete mm -hmm. this mission. Um, so it, it kind of makes sense. It feels like Loki's the only one who's been truly changed by the journey. Because, like, Sylvie just can't get past her, like, thirst for vengeance. <laughs> um, it's literally all she's ever known. But it's just kind of heartbreaking. Mm hmm because it is, in the, I feel like at the end of the day, probably the more selfish choice. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But we see her try to justify it with like, but it's bringing everyone free will. My revenge is for the better. And I mean, he does call her out on it saying, hey, you know, we've all done terrible things to get here. I just, mm -hmm. I, I love the back and forth between the three of them in general. Well, yeah, he's like, we're all villains here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, that, that is, that is a great line. And like I said, I mean, rightfully so, she just doesn't have the ability to trust anyone. Mm. In mere milliseconds before Sylvie can kill Kang, Loki once more stands in her way, dropping his sword as he pleads out to her that he isn't really looking to rule, but he just cares for her and wants Sylvie to be okay. This ultimately leads to two universes colliding in a kiss between Loki and Sylvie. But the moment ends sour with Sylvie stating that she just isn't the same as Loki and pushes him through a portal before she can finally take her revenge and slay Kang, only to have his last words be, see you soon. So Christian, what kiss in the MCU was more awkward? Uh, Steve and Sharon Carter's kiss <laughs> in Civil War? <laughs> Or Loki basically getting it on with himself here. <laughs> I think because it fits Loki as a character, I'm more okay with that than Captain America and Sharon Carter. I guess. Okay. <laughs> I feel like the metaphor that they're going for here is a little too on the nose, uh -huh. you know, with Loki basically falling in love with himself, you know, like him having to learn to love himself to fully change and, you know, earn his redemption. But, I mean, we'll talk about that in our overall thoughts later. Personally, during this scene, as much as I, you know, was behind Loki's efforts here, I can't lie when I say I wanted Sylvie to absolutely fuck up the multiverse by killing Kang. And while I'll argue you can definitely see the moment coming with her still going for revenge, I think the show handled their conflict and, you know, reasoning for why Loki is on one side and Sylvie on the other kind of perfectly. Loki, who has landed back at the TVA, takes in all that went down in the castle, while at the same time Mobius and B-15 watch the timeline pretty much explode into hundreds of branches. Loki composing himself runs out to find Mobius somewhere in the TVA, but once he actually does, he is quickly smacked with the new reality that he now lives in, as Mobius and B-15 have no idea who he is. And looking out into that kind of courtyard slash elevator area, we see the timekeepers are gone and all that remains is Kang. Yeah, so it looks like Kang has like reestablished the TVA and a new timeline. What does this mean? Why is my head starting to hurt? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, I was really excited by the reveal that there's going to be a season two because I feel like there's so much more story to tell. So how's the MCU now like affected by this in phase four? Um, I, you know, one, 
what if obviously directly ties into these events yes um so and that's we know or is only a couple weeks away um spider-man no way home is probably cinematically like the first time we're gonna see like the real impact of loki you know the series i know again uh, spider-man being the response to a big event is kind of uh, wild <laughs> well i don't know if it's going to be his response to the large i think it's just going to be his response to the side effects of the event yes yeah, you know well, what i'm saying yeah. and then of course we know next is dr strange in the multiverse of madness i mean someone will definitely be trying to harness wanda's like nexus power and use the dark hole to like take over the multiverse mm -hmm. or you know fix the multiverse or whatever they choose um so now loki is rumored to be part of that film according to a report from the hollywood reporter that came out just oh, okay. recently so um yeah and I, i'm wondering if that's just going to be kind of like almost like a glorified cameo almost kind of like what dr strange did in like ragnarok where he kind of handled all the exposition of what the hell was going on i mean maybe the tables turn and he's coming to loki for answers now and maybe loki will make him fall for you know 30 minutes straight or whatever the fuck <laughs> dr strange did to him i just hope film. i just hope that you know dr strange is stressed the fuck out and is just screaming at loki by the time he gets uh -huh. to him <laughs> after dealing with wanda and now this <laughs> uh, right and that'll be within the same movie too uh -huh. right so. and we also know dr strange is going to be part of spider-man's film mm -hmm. too we're gonna definitely be getting a lot of dr strange over the next couple of years and that's not a bad thing mm -hmm. but then like in between strange's film and uh ant-man uh quantumania which we know is gonna star jonathan majors there are like three other MCU films uh, and then a, a handful of MCU like series because you've got like Miss Marvel, Hawkeye, She-Hulk, Moon Knight. I feel like those are going to be kind of like isolated stories and more like introductions for, you know, the newer characters. And then we after, you know, seeing Black Widow, we kind of have an idea how Hawkeye is going to kind of mm -hmm. play out. So I, I don't feel like the events of Loki are going to be touched upon at all during those series i could be wrong though you know <laughs> so um but with those three other films that are happening in between you know dr strange and the next ant-man film you've got like thor love and thunder the black panther film and then marvel's uh captain marvel's sequel so do you think those films will deal with the multiverse in any like shape or form because I don't. I can't see it. Maybe like Thor, Love and Thunder, just because of the Loki connection. Well, not just that, but and I, I don't want them to go this route, but I could see them being like, oh, hey, in another universe, that's where Natalie Portman, you know, picked up the, the hammer. Oh, and that's how yeah, they bring no, it over. I would hate, I would hate that. that. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an easy way to just explaining it. Could they use the multiverse to explain like the disappearance of T'Challa. I mean, I hope not. Like, yeah. I feel like that, like you can't just erase him, obviously, because yeah, that, that would hurt his legacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, would they go that route? I feel like it, this film is probably going to be more self-contained mm -hmm. um, without them even touching on the events of Loki. Um, at least I'm hoping, because I don't want to see that at all, because I feel like that kind of cheapens his legacy as Black Panther. 
do they use it as a way to bring Killmonger back? <laughs> I mean, we see him in the What If series. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think by the time those movies come out anyway, we'll be asking for a break from all the multiverse craziness. Just have a simple MCU film uh-huh. to sit in. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It'll be a nice change of pace. Uh-huh. And then we also don't know when the second season of Loki is actually no. going to mm-hmm. air. So that could happen in between everything. But yeah, I, I can't wait to see how it plays out. No, I'm more excited now for like going into all the multiverse stuff than I was, I don't know, two months ago. And even then, like I was super excited because of WandaVision. So now that mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen the multiverse actually blow up. You know, I, I have so many ideas of possibilities of where to go. Um, mm-hmm. I did have and I mean, I did have a random fantasy booking. Uh, for okay. one of the scenes that happened that we didn't actually that didn't happen but i was hoping when the bang happened and you see uh kang looking around like i don't know what's happening here doom could have crashed through the window and just oh, stabbed well, yeah. him <laughs> 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 i thought that would be a hilarious and awesome moment that never happened though you have to set him and up. that's just how the series ends uh-huh. yeah right <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely headed towards jonathan hickman's secret wars yes. though Mm-hmm. I think we both can agree with that. Like, you know, I, I, I before, honestly, when there was talks about Secret Wars a couple of years back, I think the Russo brothers like mentioned, like, mm-hmm. you know, that that's the only thing that could bring them back to the MCU, really. For some reason, I was picturing like the original, you know, Secret Wars. But now seeing how everything plays out, like it's got to be the yes. Doom Secret Wars and Hickman mm-hmm. Secret Wars, you know, with Battle Planet and everything like that just has so much potential to be so much fun. Because mm-hmm. uh, that whole storyline was so fucking like Game of Thrones and everything with Doom and the throne. And I just I don't know, man, I, I, I'm really looking forward to that. I just want to say I hope that they don't jump the gun straight to Secret Wars. I hope that there's at least one or two Avengers movies before we get to it. No, I agree. I I feel like that's going to happen probably in like the next couple of phases. Like that's not a phase four thing at all. Mm -hmm. Like that's a phase like six thing. Like that's at the end of this new like MCU saga. So I I agree. Well, Damon, as always, what is your grade for Loki? All right. Well, so I enjoyed the series for the most part. Um, I mean, Loki is a riveting character who's pretty much entertaining every moment he's on screen. And I love the concept of what they're trying to do with like Loki's journey, you know, which is like give him a redemption Mm -hmm. um, and just sweet purpose. Right. Uh, I think this series, though, was hindered by some like major pacing issues. Um, there are episodes where it just kind of felt like we we're treading water. Um, and part of it might have been just my own expectations. I think I was expecting to get more episodes like, you know, episode five, where it was just like balls to the wall insanity. But instead, it seemed to focus more on this just, I don't know, man, like this strange romance between himself. And it, it just the whole relationship between him and Sylvie just never felt quite earned to me, um, if that makes any sense. And the same goes almost for his redemption. I mean, they do like the bare minimum to get him there. 
And I think they needed a few more moments like we got in the first episode with him kind of watching his life flash forward, you know, before his eyes. I just don't know if I believe that was enough to change the nature of a character whose like sole purpose of existence is to cause like chaos and mischief. Mm -hmm. Like knowing now that there's going to be a second season, I'm not sure why they didn't kind of stretch that out a little more and kind of left Loki's like redemption arc up for question. And I think that's why I'm relieved that there's still more story to tell, especially if we get more of that Mobius and Loki dynamic. I did love the introduction of Kang, and I think they did the best job possible, like informing the audience of who the character is and what he could mean, you know, as like a setup for phase four and just the insanity that's going to like ensue. So I think overall, like the, the show did like accomplish its mission. I just wish there was a little more emotion attached to the journey because I never had those strong emotional beats that I got in like WandaVision or even in Falcon and Winter Soldier. So I don't know. I'm going to go ahead. This is a long about way of saying <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to give Loki a B minus. For me, I, I'm coming away from this series or at least this season in general. I'm a little conflicted because I as each episode came, I enjoyed them, you know, for what they were as an episode. But when I pieced it all together as an entire season, it, it just didn't it didn't work for what they were trying to go for. The picture there with, you know, as, as you were saying, Loki, you know, having his redemption arc didn't work just yet because they didn't give us enough in between. Like I kept saying, you know, there, there probably needed to be two to four more episodes. I would have enjoyed this as a 10 part series almost uh, at this point, because it's just like if if they could just stretch it out just a little bit more and give us a, a tiny taste of more of the evil side that Loki was from the beginning, because there just wasn't enough backstab moments from him. And it, I think even with that episode five where he's watching all these people backstab each other i think it would have been even more like emotional for him to see how much how ridiculous his like schemes are in general if he had been doing it himself a little bit more throughout this you know he he kind of just starts accepting this good guy role and trying to you know be the better person from you know episode three on almost so it, it's just it felt like they kind of rushed things a little too much. I, I agree on that front. Um, but each episode itself was enjoyable on its, on its own. There was something to look forward to in each episode. And I think I got a little bit more out of this than I did in enjoyment wise uh, than Falcon and Winter Soldier. But it, I think Falcon and Winter Soldier worked better as a show in the end. Um, and that's why for me, I'm going to give it a B. Um, it's almost a B minus just because we didn't get that, you know, jet ski scene uh, that I was <laughs> hoping for at the end. Like that could have that could have been your your cutaway at the end, your after credits. You know, it's Loki finding the real Mobius and he's just out there enjoying himself on a jet ski. That's all I needed to see. That would have been awesome. Um, I, but we still have another season. Yes. To hopefully, you know, get that. <laughs> I mean, that's how the series needs to end, right? Yeah, well, now uh, next season, he's got to be, you know, fighting on a jet ski, all right? He's oh, gotta... nice, nice. <laughs> With two, like, pruning rods, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> But I agree 100% with, like, Loki's redemption. Once again, I was still expecting him to, like, betray Sylvie up to the very last moment. Uh -huh. So I just <laughs> wasn't buying it at all. But hopefully by the second season, it feels a little more earned. 
Or maybe by the end of the second season, he'll return to bad boy Loki after being scorned <laughs> by love. <laughs> Most likely. So do you think Sylvie will like instantly regret her decision? I felt like she was regretting it at the at, in the scene. You know, she just immediately collapsed there. And it, I don't mm. know. I think it's one of those situations where it's like, I know what I'm doing is selfish and wrong and I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons. But I just I am compulsed to do it, you know? It's the basis of her, like, yes. sole existence for the last, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, most of her life. So I get it. Um, it, it almost parallels um, Renslayer. It almost parallels Renslayer's arc. Because Renslayer's been existing, like, on this, I don't know, for this sole idea mm -hmm. her entire life. She's been on this mission. And once, like, you start seeing the cracks and, you know, people start questioning it, you know, she still stays true to it regardless of it being right or wrong. And I guess in the second season, you could show both these characters, one going probably more towards a light path being Sylvie and then um, Renslayer, you know, falling into the dark side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I 100% expect Sylvie to be a hot mess in the mm -hmm. second season of the show. So I guarantee it almost. I'm also glad that this show's getting a second season too because I feel like they need to break out of, and this is, goes for all the MCU shows. Right now, the last three shows have had this kind of like Scooby-Doo thing going on with like, you know, who's the big bad. Um, it, it, it's all like based on kind of this mystery that we're all being kind of like strung along by. So, uh, you know, keeping our interest. And I get it, it's a fun gimmick, but... I don't, another season like that I feel like would get old uh -huh. and I feel like that this story now needs to progress and evolve past that you know and from what it looks like it has it's a it's an easy plot device I can already picture Hawkeye and Miss Marvel kind of having that same structure <laughs> where we don't know who the big bad is until the last episode I I, I can see that I hope not I hope not I understand <laughs> it gets like people talking it's good like water cooler talk mm -hmm. um, especially for an episodic you know series um, that's coming out like every week but after a while I think it'll get stale so I, I hope the MCU just like kind of moves past it at this point. Well, it's time to put season one of Loki to bed. But if you're missing the MCU in the next couple weeks, we'll be breaking down Disney Plus's What If series. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the amazing nerd show. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Make sure to download the free Podbean app today. That's right, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Check it out. Damon, you stayed busy, though, this week. You watched another movie, right? Yes, yeah, since you didn't want anything to do with it, I <laughs> sat down and I watched Fear Street 1978. Warning, spoiler alert. Spoilers for Fear Street 1978 ahead. You have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. Run. One way or another, you're going to die tonight. There it is. It's not just a diary, it's a map. I'm not letting you die. My sister's still out there! Go, Dad, go! We can end this. Ah! 
Back to Shady Side, 1978. School's out for summer and the activities at Camp Nightwing are about to begin. But when another Shady Sider is possessed with the urge to kill, the fun in the sun becomes a gruesome fight for survival. This was directed by Lee Yang-Yak and stars Sadie Sink, Emily Rudd, and Ryan Simpkins. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch Fear Street 1994 in time to do a review for last week's show. But with that being said, after I watched it, I did, for the most part, end up agreeing with many of my co-hosts' feelings on the film. I mean, it's a bit overstuffed and way overscored and overall just lacks any real, like, suspense. Which actually kind of reminded me a lot of, like, many of the Scream copycat films we had in the 90s. Uh, and maybe that was the point. I just wish they would have chosen to, like, pay homage to, like, the best aspects horror-wise of the decade instead of its biggest faults. Um, but where me and my co-hosts do differ is I did actually like the characters and the mythos that they built around Shadyside. So I decided to go ahead and check out part two. And for the most part, I'm really glad I did. Part two is a much more well-rounded horror offering than part one, with strong performances and a slow burn pacing that allows the film in the first two acts to build suspense organically. It leans into what made those earlier slasher films work so well. It relies on things like atmosphere and uses the setting to give you this sense of isolation, which was a staple of the genre at the time. The story is being retold by a survivor of the event to the main character of the first film who's looking for answers to help her girlfriend. We are soon transported back in time to Camp Nightwing and we witness her and her sister fight for their lives against another possessed shady cider doing the bidding of the cursed town's legendary witch. This film benefits from being a sequel since it doesn't have to drown us with exposition. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's still plenty here, but we're allowed to focus more on like getting to know the main characters and not having to solve a giant mystery right off the bat. Also this time out, they chose not to beat us to death with nostalgia, which in part one became a huge distraction. That film unfortunately couldn't go two minutes without reminding us that it takes place during the 90s. Um, director Lee Yanyak lets us live with the characters for a while, which naturally makes us care about them more. Sadie Sink, who plays Max on Stranger Things, is a standout here as Ziggy, a girl who is the living embodiment of her town. Hardened and lost, she's angry at the world. It's a well-layered performance that elevates the film. You can't help but root for her and her sister, even though you know their fates are sealed. Also, the stakes just feel much higher this time out due to the sheer number of campers populating this contained setting. This allows for more tension as the counselors are trying to keep everyone alive. Uh, it also gives us a decent sized body count, which as a horror fan is a big deal. It really just plays up this feeling that no one's safe. I think my biggest issue overall as a fan of the genre is the deaths just felt uncreative and kind of dry. Uh, there's Plenty of splatter and gore, don't get me wrong, but as a fan of slasher films, I need a little more like pizzazz and style when it comes to my kills. Um, that might sound sick and twisted, but it is what it is. <laughs> I did like that they focused this time out on just one killer. Not that I didn't like the group of like possessed, you know, killers from the past doing the witch's bidding in part one and a little towards the end in this film, but I thought focusing on one ghoul at a time just added more intensity overall to the film. So on the flashback side of things, I thought the ending was really well done and just, 
I don't know, really sad. Um, which says a lot once again for the actors and everyone involved because you really actually cared about the characters, which unfortunately sometimes in these films doesn't always happen. I do, however, wish they would have ended the film there in 1978. Uh, we do flash forward to the main characters of part one, uh, and it, I don't know, it just felt flat to me. I understand that they have a main narrative running like through these stories. I just felt like they could have saved it for like the next part, especially since it's only one week away. And that's one thing I have to say, like this feels like it was supposed to be like a TV series that they decided to make like into a trilogy of films for some reason. And I don't know if it's just the whole aspect of it coming out consecutively like three weeks in a row, but it just feels like a season of American Horror Story divided into three films. Uh, something about it just structure wise just feels off and disjointed to me, but I'm still invested and want to see how it all plays out. Fear Street does enough to capture what made the slasher genre work without feeling like bad parody, which is hard sometimes to do. Uh, I just needed a little more flair out of our axe-wielding psychopath. So with that being said, I'm going to give it a B-. Uh, go ahead and check it out for yourselves, though. It's streaming now on Netflix. This week's episode of The Amazing Nerd Show is brought to you by Manscaped. Breaking news, this important PSA is brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is your public service announcement and the news you've all been waiting for. The Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is now available for purchase in the USA and Canada. This new trimmer was just released only moments ago, and we're one of the first to get our hands on it and share the news. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and use our exclusive code for our listeners and get 20% off and free shipping with our code AMAZING at Manscaped.com. I was absolutely blown away by the new lawnmower 4.0's performance. The craftsmanship and details on the 4.0 are next level. Their advanced ceramic blade and skin safe technology is so good that it almost seems as if Manscaped worked with Elon Musk's engineers to ensure your testes are as safe as possible. Christian, I'm a hairy bastard. And one day my wife said enough's enough and got me my very own Manscaped lawnmower. I went from being a Wookiee to being as smooth as Lando. So you know my Bad Batch was more than ready for the next mission when I got my Lawnmower 4.0. You may be asking what makes this trimmer different than all the others? Well, a new multi-function on-off switch can engage a travel lock created for people who like to travel. The Lawnmower 4.0 gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. The new trimmer even allows you to customize your trim all over through additional guard lengths with sizes one through four. And looks wise, it's sleek with a two-tone matte and gloss finish, and it even features a hot foil stamp black chrome Manscaped logo. So show off your mower loud and proud so you can show off your mower loud and proud. The optimized lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is waterproof so you can groom in the shower and not have to worry about making a mess on the bathroom floor. 
Did I mention wireless charging? The Lawnmower 4.0's new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. If you're still trimming your face with your ball trimmer, it's time to make some changes. Get 20% off plus free shipping with our code AMAZING at manscaped.com because no person wants to end up with pubes in their mouth and gentlemen, your balls will thank you. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use our code AMAZING, that's A-M-A-Z-I-N-G to unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Well, all right, guys, it's time for some Bad Batch talk. We're talking episode 11, Devil's Deal. Warning, spoiler alert. Spoilers for Star Wars The Bad Batch ahead. You have been warned. If we need to fight, I am as capable as anyone. Gobi trusts me to do my part. Why can't you? <laughs> that fiery spirit. You remind me of myself at your age. So this week was definitely a change of pace. I mean, the Bad Batch are in the episode for maybe a couple minutes at best. But you know what? Getting a glimpse of Hera's backstory, one of my favorite characters from Rebels, made it all worthwhile. So we start the episode on Ryloth, the home planet of the Twi'leks, in kind of a similar scene we got from last episode on the Separatist planet. And once again, we're witnessing a forced speech being given by the planet senator, uh, Owen Freetop. Uh, he's trying to calm the citizens' concerns about the Empire's occupation and turning over their weapons. Hera's father, Cham, has to step in to convince the crowd to comply, as they don't seem to trust the senator. Rampart and Crosshair are both on the planet. Um, Crosshair seems to be pretty much healed after the injury from a couple episodes ago, which honestly I'm kind of surprised by, uh, because like, what was the point of that moment? Or, I mean, maybe it'll come into play somewhere down the line. There is this, like, big scar on the side of his head. So I'm wondering if the blast ended up damaging the chip, maybe? I mean, he sure isn't acting like it in this episode, though. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe he's underneath his own free will, though. But I'm just speculating. I mean, if anything, he seems even more, like, like ready to just murder someone in this episode alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, just to say at any time he's ready to just take down someone. He sure does love uh, murder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did I mention that's my daughter's favorite fucking clone? <laughs> Should I be worried? <laughs> well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> so next we see Hera and Chopper spying on the Empire in a forbidden zone for her uncle, who is less trusting than her father, who seems to just want to believe the Empire has good intentions and just wants his people to live a peaceful existence after being at war for years now you know with the previous episode we had with kind of like seeing someone on the separatist side not really accepting you know his people going into the empire and stuff and working together that way it was kind of cool to see like hey you know we did all this fighting we trusted the clones in the past it was cool to see what different types of propaganda were being used at this time. What what kind of like ideas, you know, different sides would see this as, especially since, you know, we have no idea what all these nations would think of, of Palpatine just saying, hey, I'm emperor now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, how is this legal? How does this work? You know, it, I, I don't know. 
Um, it's, it was cool to see, you know, these people, you know, have this type of reaction and them having to calm, calm them down altogether. I just like, I love this lore building. That's what I love about these shows. Exactly. And I'm, you know, this is probably taking place across the galaxy right now. Exactly. So it gives you an idea of like just how powerful the Empire, like, you know, has grown to be in such a short period of time. Hera ends up getting caught by the clones and we see her get delivered back to her parents by Captain Hauser who has a good relationship with Cham, her father. Hauser tells Cham that he's not going to report this incident this time, but it does put him in a difficult situation. Um, Hauser feels somehow different than the other clones, and I'm not sure why. He just seems less robotic and has more free will. I'm wondering if he never received, like, Order 66 somehow. I mean, I don't know if it's a situation where there just wasn't any Jedi left on this planet, so he never received Order 66, or what, What you know, what would be the reasoning, but all the other clones seem, you know, obedient to the letter even around him, especially when you have parallels of Crosshair right next to him, pretty much ready to kill anyone in sight. So it's, you know, it was very, you know, apparent that he was different. Or even Wrecker when his, like, chip kicks in. Mm -hmm. Like, he goes on a complete rampage. So, I mean, something's definitely different about, like, Hauser. So Hera's family ends up finding out that the area that she was spying on is actually going to become like a military zone, which flies in the face of everything they were originally told by Rampart. Next, we see Hera's uncle convince her to go off planet on a weapons run. He convinces her by letting her fly the ship. And we see that even at a young age, flying was always Hera's passion. Crosshair, though, is lurking in the shadows and fires a tracker on the ship. So once again, his skills aren't diminished at all. Uh, when the ship does reach its final destination, this is the first and only time we end up meeting up with the Bad Batch, who are supplying the weapons on behalf of Sid. Hera and Omega end up hitting it off and bonding quickly, maybe foreshadowing things to come. Yeah, I was definitely surprised to see them show up here and then just disappear right you know i thought i was like okay well now the bad batch are involved in the story we'll see where this goes no they just leave yeah. <laughs> you know what it totally felt like like you know at old sitcoms when they were trying to spin off like with another show they would always mm -hmm. do this weird abrupt like pilot episode where it just focused on a different group of characters who might be in the world of the sitcom but you know they spent like a little too much time with the neighbors that, that's what this felt like. We're, we're setting up Hera's wild adventure. Maybe, so. I don't know. <laughs> With her crazy uncle. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember when Growing Pains, like, introduced, like, this new, like, family. I think, like... It was like their gym teacher's family, and they spent like way too long with them. And then, of course, like, you know, a month later, uh -huh. like, just the 10 of us was like announced. So. As Hera's uncle's ship returns back to the planet, Crosshair blasts the ship out of the sky, forcing it to crash land. This, of course, plays right into the Senator and Rampart's hands as they want to get rid of Hera's family as they see them as a threat to their power. Captain Hauser lets them know that he disapproves right away, which I thought was interesting, especially under Order 66 if he does have a chip. Hera's family ends up finding out about her capture and goes into rescue mission mode. Chasing after the convoy, they impressively take out the clone and free their family. Cham seems to want to execute the corrupt senator, but Hauser pleads with him not to. Rampart then shows how cunning he is by signaling to Crosshair to execute the senator. Rampart now can use this to frame the Sindulas and get them out of his hair for good. They all get arrested, but Hera does end up escaping, and that's how the episode ends. 
So I'm wondering if up next we end up seeing Hera getting help from the Bad Batch. I feel like that makes perfect sense story-wise and could also lead to them telling the story of how she ends up joining the Rebel Alliance. Uh, I'm also curious to see if anything comes out of what we saw from Captain Hauser. Like I said, he's not like the other clones, so I'm wondering if he ends up helping Hera out. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like that has to be the direction they're going in because Rampart hands him the gun and, you know, Hauser's face alone says it all. He's like, I don't want to go after her. You know, so if anything, he'll probably end up just helping her and probably going out and finding the Bad Batch or being somehow a part of it. And maybe they'll introduce the concept of, you know, a chip being in his head or they'll figure out, you know, or what's his name? will do a fucking simple scan and be like, oh, he doesn't have a chip. You know, <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't seen a scene yet with the Bad Batch where they discuss like trying to save Crosshair. Especially now that mm -hmm. they know that there's a procedure that can reverse, you know, the damage that the chip has done. Especially now knowing that there's a procedure that they can do to, like, you know, get rid of the effects of the chip. Um, I'm guessing that's going to happen sooner than later, though. Especially, like, the Bad Batch's mentality of, like, you know, leaving no one behind. So I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine them, you know, just being kind of at peace with, you know, Crosshair you know, being on the other side, knowing that it's due to, you know, Order 66. Yeah, it's it's odd that we haven't seen anything like that, but maybe, you know, they still have five more episodes, yeah. so there's plenty of time. I think they're saving it. <laughs> I really do. One of the things I, I guess, another one of my little gripes was, um, you know, it, Rampart was like the only person there that wasn't a clone at that point. Uh, why did he need to make it a cover up? You know, why was he saving face in front of Hauser and stuff like that? Like, oh, you know, this is, we're going to frame them uh, for this. You know, he didn't really have to say anything. It's like, hey, we killed I think this it's guy. probably more of it. a story that they're going to tell the citizens so they don't rebel. Gotcha. You know, because they're trying to get them off the board and they seem to have, mm -hmm. you know, huge sway over the people. Like he was able to convince those people to give up their weapons. Let me say it one time. He was able to convince the citizens to give up their weapons, you know, when at first, when the senator was giving the speech, they were having none mm -hmm. of it. But, you know, obviously they respect him enough as a leader that, you know, that they're willing to do what he says. Where if, you know, they see that Cham and his family are arrested for no reason whatsoever, mm -hmm. they might have a small rebellion on their hands. But yeah, it was definitely a cool episode to get in this season. Like, I definitely didn't expect to get a Hera backstory episode. So I was, you know, excited by the change of pace. But at the same time, I want to know where we're going. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be the final arc of the season, especially with five episodes. Mm -hmm. Like I was saying last episode, this would be the you know catalyst. But I definitely don't think this would be yeah. it. So maybe they'll spend maybe two to three episodes with Hera and that type of storyline. And then the two last two episodes would be something else. I don't know. It feels like at the end of every episode, I feel like I know where they're going, like, you know, the, the next week, but that mm -hmm. ends up just not being the case. They always end up throwing <laughs> me a curveball, so, uh, which is a good thing. You know, I'm, I like that yeah. it's kind of unpredictable at this point. I mean, it's, I, I think there's enough room in the story if they want to do a second season. Oh, sure. absolutely. Trying to just, no, yes. Like, yes. I hope that there's a second season because I feel mm -hmm. like there's just way too much story still to tell to kind of wrap everything up in like, what, five episodes? Exactly. But yeah, you can join us next week as we get into episode 12 of The Bad Batch. Well, now it's time for Christian's Corner. This last week in gaming, we got our first real look at the Steam Deck, gaming's possibly next big handheld style console, though they just simply call it a gaming PC in your hands. 
Now, a gaming PC in the palm of your hands doesn't sound as impressive as it used to with how far, you know, mobile gaming has come over the last few years. However, the Steam Deck looks to give you the quality of playing hardcore PC games on the go in ways other handhelds like, you know, the Switch don't have the power to do. While you won't be hitting, you know, ultra graphics like you would on your dream build at home, you will see high fidelity graphics that many handhelds fail to deliver. From those who have had like a hands-on experience Experience, you can see games like, you know, Jedi Fallen Order running at a respectable frame rate on high settings. But the most exciting aspect of this is the fact that it's not hard locked to only games available through Steam, which don't get me wrong, is an impressive library. And while it does come with a new version of SteamOS, you can also go through third-party means to play games outside of Steam, as the device also runs on Linux as well. And while this hasn't been tested yet, there's nothing to say that you wouldn't be able to run Xbox Game Pass through this device. But again, the Steam library is already vast on its own, and if the Steam Deck is, you know, able to run most of the catalog, it will have a major leg up on all of its competition as far as games go. I mean, when I look back at the Switch, the things that kind of like interested me about it was, you know, its ease of use and, you know, its portability. But the main things that kept holding me back was, you know, its graphics and very much limited amount of third party games that you could actually play on it. You know, as much as I like Nintendo's suite of games, the Steam Deck just blows it out of the water by a lot in this regard and has a ton more potential. I also think that this is kind of a big step in the further advancement of mobile gaming, games as a service, and the handheld console altogether. And I gotta say, I was quite impressed at what they, you know, showed off here. There will be three models of the Steam Deck and they're kind of releasing it the same way that phones do with having like three different, you know, actual and they're kind of releasing it the same way that phones do, where it will pretty much be the same processing power for all of them, but there will be different amounts of storage between the models. For $399, you'll get 64 gigabytes. For $529, you'll get 256 gigabytes. And for $649, you'll get 512 gigabytes. However, the Steam Deck also includes a slot for microSD so that you can actually expand the storage on your own as well. The Steam Deck is slated for holiday this year, but also slated for this week, we go live on Twitch with some PC gaming of our own as we continue on with all the adventures we've started. On Thursday, we play Ghost of Tsushima as part of our replay series, and on Friday, we hop into the squared circle for our very own wrestling promotion, PCW, in WWE 2K19. And then Saturday, we play Mass Effect Legendary Edition, and we're actually closing in on the end of our Sunday show, which is when I play Witcher 3. So right now, I am actually pushing for 300 followers on Twitch, so if you're interested in more of the gaming side of the Amazing Nerd Show, make sure to head on over to our Twitch and give us a follow, and if you'd like to further support the show you can subscribe for free using your amazon prime account but all right let's move on to wrestling obviously all of y'all need some help a lot of help you'll never be like me no matter what happens so don't get that in your mind you'll never look like me i have the most gorgeous body there is in professional wrestling today in bodybuilding and whatever everything and the number one so i know you're all excited you want to get close to mr wonderful you want to see mr wonderful well i'm here to try to help you all right, Christian, so we just watched night one of AEW's Fighter Fest. What was your 
thoughts? You know, I had a real good time. You know, this is a TV event, and they really put on almost pay-per-view level matches. I mean, they're shorter for sure, but, you know, the quality is still there. It's AEW, so I, I think I come to expect them to put on some good matches. Yeah, I mean, these are stacked cards that they've been doing since they're, mm-hmm. like, back on Wednesdays, which makes sense because they want to draw, you know, their audience back to, like, getting used to watching on Wednesdays again. And it seems to be actually working. So, exactly. um, and man, I won't lie. I'm still not over like actually having a live crowd like at these shows now i still get goosebumps every time they open up one of these shows mm-hmm. um you know and this this crowd was extra hot tonight i mean they were popping for everything um so it just made the show that much more enjoyable yeah i mean you know wrestlers that you think that they wouldn't even cheer for that were getting you know we're getting the pop of a lifetime so i i definitely appreciate give having yeah, like, a live audience again like what about ricky starks like what the fuck happened <laughs> <laughs> now he's from the austin area or he currently lives there could that yeah. be part of it i Probably, felt bad for brian but... cage i won't lie because <laughs> it kind of also felt like it threw him off a little mm-hmm. um you know he did eventually recover but like yeah no it just felt like it kind of threw off the match uh but yeah no ricky starts I, I was like is he really this over or is this like a home crowd situation uh but i i was impressed i love him i hope he's that over that's great <laughs> for him and the company <laughs> But yeah, it was a pretty um, amazing like reaction. Like um, last week and this week, you know, most of the things that they've done, you know, over the year, uh, you know, showing who's heel and whose face has worked uh, until this point, <laughs> until we saw Ricky. Yeah, Stark, so this I don't might know. be the first like case <laughs> of the crowd rejecting the booking. Because mm-hmm. I'm trying to actually think back of any other time where they're, you know, the crowd isn't kind of going along with the storyline and like you know booing the face. So, I mean, that happens all the time on WWE TV, but, you know, AEW, that hasn't been the case. <laughs> so that that was a little strange. It did stand out to me. But, yeah, besides the little hiccup in, like, the first, like, couple minutes of the match, I thought it was pretty fucking solid. Um, I was happy to see the amount of time that they got. Uh, but they've been mm-hmm. telling this story for months now. So I'm just, I'm also surprised, like, how quickly Starks, like, came back from his injury. Because it really sounded like he was going to be out for at least six months. I mean, it was a neck injury, for crying out loud. But, I mean, he's back. And maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe it was because of the injury that everyone was back. I don't know. I, I keep I on know. trying to find a reason for him being this over. But I guess it's just him. Because um, it's not like he's getting tons of mic time, too, on Dynamite. No. Um, I mean, to be honest, I was kind of dead on this storyline, yeah. personally. Like, I definitely wasn't too interested in this match or anything, but this match won me over. Like, now I'm all about the FTW championship. Let's... Yeah, I mean, I did think it was predictable. Uh-huh. I thought, like, Team Taz was going to end up siding with Starks and yeah. everything like that. You're not going to have a fucking babyface, you know, Taz group mm-hmm. that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but it was a well-put-together match. And even though, like, the outcome was predictable... That's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes that's just what's best for the story. So um, now Brian Cage is supposed to be the babyface. Um, I don't know if they have to eventually, you know, if this like follows him, you know, <laughs> as they go like town to town, you know, maybe they'll have to switch gears. But I guess we'll just have mm-hmm. to wait and see. But yeah, no, we're totally out of order. But I'm, 
you know, I thought it was the perfect way to start the show, having John Moxley, you know, defend the IWGP uh, United States title against Carl uh, Anderson because um, the crowd just went fucking crazy for Mox. Yeah, I mean, I actually cut in about halfway through this, but even from, you know, the moments on the ramp going forward, it was just hard hitting. And I love, I love Carl yes. Anderson. So I'm happy to see him in singles competition in general. Like, I don't remember the last time I saw him in a regular singles match outside of like AEW and stuff like that. So it's awesome. No, it was a great match and everything like that. And, you know, once again, I was surprised, like, how hard the crowd was booing him, you know, because he uh-huh. does have such a rabid, like, fan base and everything. So that just made me even more surprised <laughs> for the Starks match. Let's <laughs> go back to it. Because uh-huh. <laughs> AEW usually just, I don't know, the audience usually kind of respects the storylines. So, but it is what it is. Um, no, this was a great match and everything. Super fucking hard hitting, man. They yes. were smashing mm. each other in the fucking face. I mean, they were leaving marks. So, I mean, Moxley was bleeding from his nose and his mouth. Um, Anderson had a good cut, like, over his fucking cheekbone. I don't know if you saw that. I was surprised that Eddie Kingston and, you know, Doc Gallows were kind of taken out of the match so early on. You know, I, I would have liked to see them stick around and get involved a little more. Um, but it is what it is. I understand you're trying to mm. keep it one-on-one. Um so Moxley ended up picking up the win, which, I mean, I think we all saw coming. But uh, now it looks like he is a new challenger. And I, is that next week taking place? Yeah, it's next week. Like, if if the hard-hitting singles match wasn't enough, it's going up against uh, the Murderhawk Lance Archer yes. in a Texas death match. So I'm going to say this. Um, they keep on putting Archer in these big matches, and he keeps uh-huh. on fucking <laughs> failing, you know, like month after month. He's got to end up winning one of these, you know, mm. if they're like truly behind him, because it's going to start hurting him. Um, so, I mean, do we think he actually picks up the win here? I'd hope so, because I mean, like, I don't know. Every time I see one of his promos at this point, I'm thinking, you know, he's just that edgy teenager that's just asking for another title match. And he's just kind of crying <laughs> wolf at this point, right? Uh-huh. Um, and... <laughs> He kind of flip-flops, too. Like, he's this, like, total mm-hmm. tweener character. One day it feels like he's a heel. The next day he's a baby face. Um, I'm not sure where they're going with him. Uh, you know, he's got ties with New Japan, obviously. He was there for years. So maybe New Japan's okay with him winning the title. Uh, but I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around Moxley losing the belt on AEW TV. Unless New Japan's just like, we don't really care about that title, so do what you fucking want. <laughs> I wouldn't I mean, be surprised. It's free publicity for them regardless. Uh-huh. And maybe they'll be happy like being able to work with, you know, Archer again. Because then he gets to be on their, you know, TV show. On the American side, at least. It is kind of crazy that that title isn't being featured on their their American show at you know, because it's constantly over here on AEW. It- <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it's more of a case. I mean, Moxley did show up there and defend it, I believe, mm-hmm. once or twice. Um, he was at least on the show more than once. I know that. But yeah, no, it's not heavily featured at all. Um, no. But maybe Archer will change that if he wins the belt. Like maybe they've worked out something where now Archer can be over there more and everything. I mean, AEW is so fucking like, I don't know, stacked right now. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, you know, put it past them saying, OK, well, you know what? We can actually put Archer on loan to you for a little bit and spare him at this point. Mm. 
I mean, and Moxley's got bigger fish to fry right now. I mean, he's still got to, you know, form that perfect tag team of the wild thing. So <laughs> but anyway, like after this match, do you think the feud between, you know, Moxley, Kingston and, you know, the super elite, you know, continue? Maybe now it'll just feature more Moxley and Kingston versus, you know, the Good Brothers? I, probably, I think, because, I mean, I don't know who else, because they... I mean, we'll get into another segment where the elite, you know, show up and are challenging the Dark Order. But I, I don't imagine the Dark Order being, you know, the super elite's main, you know, baddies as far as the tag teams mm. go. Yeah, their main opponents. Yeah. Yeah. Main opponents, yeah. So because, um, yeah, they're definitely not baddies. They're super fucking over right now. That just uh-huh. that cracks me up from where they were just like a year and a half ago to now. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Yeah, because there's no one in, like, the tag team rankings also that feel like a bona fide, like, you know, real rival to them. You've got, like, the Acclaimed and the Varsity Blondes, but I feel like that's, those mm-hmm. are both, like, one-off type matches. I don't see, like, a serious feud coming out of it. Um, maybe Moxley and Kingston have to go through the Good Brothers to get to the Young Bucks again. And then that way they can kind of put off this, like, match until, you know, um, all out. I'm honestly surprised that Jurassic Express isn't getting more involved with the Super Elite, especially after Jungle Boy's match with Omega. Um, I definitely thought that that's the direction they would go, um, especially since they're a tag team. They have you know plenty of tag team wins in their past, mm. too. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know where they're ranked right now. So they do try mm-hmm. to keep to the rankings, it feels like. Um, although I do feel like Moxley and Kingston might have jumped in line, uh, but... It is what it is. Uh, you know, you got to do what's best for storyline at times, uh-huh. um, even if it gets a little convoluted. Uh, but yeah, no, no, I, I'm sure that'll happen sooner than later. Well, speaking of the elite in general, uh, we had uh, Adam Page come out and actually announced that he wants to fight Omega. Uh, of course, the elite show up and, you know, trample all over that dream. Uh <laughs> eventually announcing some type of match but who knows when and who knows where so yeah at first i mean omega seemed to be just denying you know page that match altogether even though page is the number one contender so like you know he's in his full rights to make the challenge uh but then callus gets in his ear omega you know then lays it out on the line that you know hey we'll do a match but let's do it you know group against group so it looks like it's going to be the super elite against the dark order um you know and page who's I still feel like he's not an official member of the Dark Order. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and it's going to be elimination style. Uh, and if they win, the Dark Order wins, then the Dark Order will get a tag match. Uh, but if they lose, then the Dark Order ends up losing their tag match and Hangman ends up losing his number one contendership. I'm interested to see if, you know, Hangman and the Dark Order end up losing the match. And then Hangman has to, like, earn his number one contendership some other way, um, you know, leading to probably all out, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. if it's just their way of kind of stretching things out a little. I mean, that's that's a great way to stretch it out. But at the same time, I totally imagine, especially if this is an elimination style match, um, they would want to do a sole survivor moment for Adam Page just to put him. I agree 100 percent. I agree 100%. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed this segment, by the way. Um, It was weird, though, because they announced the match, but they didn't say when it was happening. So I was actually questioning Mm -hmm. whether or not it was happening, like, tonight. (laughs) 
But then I was like, okay, well, but that doesn't make any sense. They don't have any, like, room for this match. It kind of felt like an old school, like, WWE segment where, you know, on Raw, you'd have, like, you know, them kind of booking on the fly, you know, where AW tells you basically what's happening on Dynamite the week before. You don't get many, like, spontaneous matches on AEW. And that's not a bad thing, because I do like the fact that you know what you're going to see, like, every night on the show. But once in a while, I think it's a nice way to freshen things up. Yeah, but I I mean, it, matches are announced, matches are announced. It's fine. I'm not going to be bothered if, you know, it's all stuff that I see coming. As long as I don't know what the end result is. You know, well, that's, I don't that's even what I mind about. knowing, like, the end result. Because, once again, sometimes the predictable story is the best story. You know, it's the best thing mm-hmm. for the storyline. I do like it sometimes where on, like, a live show, you do have those spontaneous moments to kind of mix things up. It makes it more like must-see TV. You know, not all the time. Like, <laughs> I want some kind of roadmap, you know, here. Uh, you know, I don't want to see them just book it on the fly. But, you know, it, once in a while, I think it's okay. So I did like the moment. But I'm sure they're going to announce when that match is taking place, like, any day now. If they haven't yeah. already. We're, we're, we're literally recording <laughs> this right after Dynamite. So. I did enjoy the Andrade segment, um, you know, with him being interviewed in the back. Um, by what's his name, whoever hangs out with Penta, I can't think of the announcer's name, who's become like this, I don't know, manager, I guess, yeah, kind, kind of, of. <laughs> translator too. Um, but yeah, no, um, where he asks, you know, what is Death Triangle? So it seems like we're going to end up getting some kind of feud or interaction between, you know, Andrade and Death Triangle. So, I mean, that's potential for three awesome fucking matches right off the bat. Or, hey, maybe we could get Death Squared. Yeah, I mean, yeah, dude, could they join forces? It's possible. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be mad at that. No, I think uh, that'd be great tag team matches between all of them. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, I know you weren't a big fan of the match, but I really did enjoy the Christian Cage and uh, Matt Hardy match. Uh, they've been building up for a while. I thought it was a really well-worked match. Um, it didn't feel like the crowd at first wasn't like they weren't like completely into it, but then they eventually won them over. Um, and at this point, it, it feels like Kenny Omega is definitely in like Christian Cage's future. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I, they, they had some good spots here and there. It just wasn't doing it for me. Uh, I've never been the biggest Christian fan, and I've already been kind of over Matt Hardy's character over the last few months in general. So I don't know. I just wasn't wasn't really there for this match. But I, th- I, I did I did like the end results where you know uh, um, Jurassic Express comes to help out uh, uh, Christian in that moment. Um, I thought Christian might do a last minute turn there <laughs> out of nowhere. It wouldn't have fit, but I, I thought it would have been a cool moment. I do feel like it turns in the cards and I'm mm-hmm. all for it because <laughs> Babyface Christian is just okay to me. Like mm-hmm. the money's with like heel Christian, a hundred percent. You know, Christian is a natural fucking heel. So when he's a baby face, it always feels a little insincere to me, you know, mm-hmm. um, because we've just seen him at his worst so many times. <laughs> Uh, he's doing a great job in the role and everything and i'm I'm sure they're going to be playing up this whole like mentor thing you know between him and jungle boy for christian to eventually do the big turn and everything yeah go full heel. <laughs> maybe after he faces like omega so because i'm sure christian's eventually going to start getting like jealous of jungle boy's success mm-hmm. so i think this is just you know long form storytelling happening here 
And honestly, like Christian's the perfect guy to put with Jungle Boy, like oh, for absolutely. him to be underneath his learning tree and everything. Mm-hmm. So I got, I mean, I popped when he fucking did that dive, you know, from the um, the top turnbuckle on the outside. Mm-hmm. That was pretty fucking ballsy. He's still, though, like walking down to the ring and maybe he's always moved like this, but he looks like such an old man. <laughs> Like, like it literally hurts him every step he takes. I don't, next time, watch his entrance. Because <laughs> like, I can, he, but I can imagine that from the past in WWE, oh, where he does that kind of weird, like almost feels like he's tripping over himself as he's going down. He, um, he walks on the balls of his feet, and I okay. think that's part of it. You Maybe know? it's just weird. <laughs> yeah. So, but like the way he was kind of walking out there, it's like, is he in pain or is this like mm-hmm. part of his storyline? Like he's the older guy, like, you know, filled with aches and pains and just trying to overcome everything, you know, to get back to like, you know, where he was in the past, um, which I do feel like he is telling that story in his matches a lot of times. So maybe he's gone that far and brought that to his entrances. I do want to briefly, once again, get AEW props there like production on this week's show was, you know, fucking just light years ahead of what we were seeing a couple months ago. And maybe it was just, you know, that difficult to shoot at Daly's place. But like, I don't like, it just feels like, I mean, I was, I was literally like, did they fire their director and hire someone else? <laughs> Cause they had all these great, like swooping shots for the mm-hmm. you know entrance. It felt like they had a crane going and everything. Um, it, it just felt really well done, and like they didn't miss much in the matches. Like the matches themselves were, you know, a better shot. I was gonna say the ones that really stood out for me for some reason was um, in the Yuka versus Penelope Ford match. Um, there's these spots where Yuka's like, you know, coming off the top rope, a, a bunch of different positions and stuff like that. And there might be a moment where she's shaky or something, but they seem to, you know, capture just the mm. right amount. Where you're not, you know, seeing any type of flub or anything like that. A happen. lot of like crisp, like transitions. Yes. So, um, which we definitely weren't getting over the last like year or so. So, and I don't know why that is though. Like, why the like huge change so quickly? Because it did feel like just like two months ago we were complaining about you know yes. the camera work <laughs> and the production and everything like that. Like the sounds also great, mm-hmm. you know, because that was a big issue. Like the sound was always weird. Um, like people's mics weren't on half the time, <laughs> you know, or the like the ring music was always like too quiet. So I, I don't know what the hell's going on, but I, I definitely appreciate it. Speaking of Yuka, like how over was she? <laughs> Extremely. Because <laughs> I was like, like, wait, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> I remember when, you know, they brought her out for like all in and like the early episodes of like uh, of Dynamite. And she was part like of the tournament, too. Right. They did yeah. a couple months ago, but she was mm-hmm. actually I believe she was in Japan. Right. Yes. OK. OK. So I, I, I was just impressed, like how excited the crowd was to see her here. Um, well, no, yeah, I was going to say, like, they they were behind her when she first showed up, but this felt like on a whole new level. Like, mm-hmm. they, they seemed so overhyped for her. I'm just like, is it just because, you know, we're back to live audiences or what? Because, I mean, this crowd, as I was saying, is just super hot for it's everyone. It's nice to get a real feel for what's actually working. Um, and it seems like almost everything is, which is crazy to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> except, except maybe Cody? Because mm. Cody got kind of a mixed reaction. And I don't know if it's because he's in a storyline with Malachi Black. And, you know, Malachi's the new guy. And he's super, you know, everyone's super excited to see him. 
But when Cody came out, there was a lot of booze. Um, we were talking about it last week. It does feel like he's been like losing momentum, like ever since he's been involved with, you know, the factory, you know, QT Marshall's, you know, little group. Um, you know, so we'll see if this continues because usually like Cody is, is white meat of a baby face as you know, there is in the company. So, um, but yeah, no, definitely a mixed reaction. I think it's just a matter of who he goes up against. You know, I feel like, as you said, the, the factory was not the right type of heels to go up against Cody because Cody, I mean, Cody can sell the hell out of any type of match. He'll, he'll get you invested in whatever, well, but I feel like a, no one in the factory were, was ready for prime time. Is no the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like a complete, like, I don't know, waste of Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just felt like they were elevating this group of, you know, wrestlers just because they're connected to Cody somehow. So it's almost a little like overindulgent on his part. Um, so maybe that's why the backlash is happening or maybe that's just how I'm feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they definitely experimented with it, but I don't think that really went through. No, no, but obviously I- didn't work. But I just didn't expect to see the ramifications, you know, so quickly, um, you know, because I felt like he was getting less of a reaction the last couple weeks from the crowd. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't getting straight booze like this. <laughs> this week, he got straight fucking booze. But once again, that might be just because of Malachi Black and we're reading way too much into it. How did you feel yeah. about that segment altogether? I mean, altogether, I. I'm still excited for the two of them to go up against one another. I definitely don't think Malachi Black should have entered the ring at all. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, as as you said, Cody's getting mixed reactions here. And Malachi Black is your brand new star. Of course, everyone's going to be behind him. Mm-hmm. This is your second, you know, I think, I believe second week on the road. Yeah. Right. Of course, the crowd's going to be hyped. They're going to be behind whoever that brand new baby, well, not heel, is in the company mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. But, I mean, in all fairness, they didn't realize Cody was going to get such a mixed reaction, mm-hmm. too. So maybe they were thinking that, you know, the crowd seeing Cody, that would have gotten them, like, on their feet and everything and excited, um, you know, and that would be enough to carry the segment. But it just, if you want to keep Malachi Black heel here, because everyone's going to pop every time he comes out right now, mm-hmm. you know, since he's so new. Um, you need to have him doing more heel-like things and him not actually showing up in the ring, you know, not answering, you know, being called out would definitely get heat. Yeah, just have him like, I don't know, take out Jungle Boy one week out of nowhere mm-hmm. um, and just be like, this Dude, is for you, Cody. Right I now, know. I don't know. It's going to take a while because, I mean, <laughs> he fucking, you know, did the blackout on fucking Arn Anderson and uh, everyone cheered. <laughs> I, I, ev- I don't know, man. I still would cheer. Everyone, everyone loves Arn Anderson. Even ignorant son of a bitches like yourself. I love Arn, but it's that's a fun moment. Uh, <laughs> it was a hell of a debut, though. I, I, I mean, I liked what Cody had to say. Like, you don't come in and kick the old man. Yeah, the 60-year-old man. I was like, I feel like Arn's older than 62. But... <laughs> oh, we're gimmicking the age now. Maybe. <laughs> We also had Jericho cutting a great promo backstage. He ends up getting interrupted with the chair to the throat from Sean Spears. And we find out that, you know, Spears is going to be MJF's uh, first task for Jericho next week. So, I mean, it looks like, yeah, he's going to be fighting each member of the Pinnacle going yeah, forward. Yeah, you know, 
I think it would be almost more interesting if MJF made him fight all of the inner circle. Oh, that'd been interesting. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because then, yeah. And then like, maybe like make the last match, like a loser leaves match. Something where Jericho would actually be torn about. Uh huh. You know, where Jericho would have to like, basically, you know, almost like sell his soul, you know, to get to MJF. You know, and that's the way MGF like breaks up the inner circle. That would been a cool. That would have been a cool storyline. I definitely think I, I'd be interested in that. Um, now I'm going to be disappointed with whatever they do. To me. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> like it's him versus Sammy or something like that. Uh-huh. At the end. That would have been a great finish too. Yeah. The problem is, you know, not that it's a problem. Uh, the problem is with that storyline is. They stick to their stipulations. They haven't really broken any of their stipulations yet. So if you do a leave a loser leaves match, they're gonna have to break the stipulation somehow. So loser leaves dynamite, but hey, shows up on rampage. <laughs> they're not there actually two separate brands. Though, I know, but I'm just saying <laughs> it's a little weak. <laughs> it's a loophole. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, speaking of Sammy, he had a match, uh, once again, super over white hot. I mean, how many fucking wrestlers on this roster? Can we say that about right now? <laughs> Too many. Cause I mean, Britt Baker came out to mm-hmm. a huge fucking pop, got an awesome reaction, cut a great promo. Um, it just feels like everyone is just on fire right now with these crowds. I do say Guevara is from Houston, so maybe maybe that was just an added bonus. Yeah, but you know what? Last week he also or his last match he also got a huge reaction, so I'm sure mm-hmm. that was part of it. But I don't know. It was a weird choice to have him go up against you know uh, Chuck and Orange's like new buddy. Uh, yeah, Wheeler Yuta. Yeah, he wasn't bad though. I thought he was impressive, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I just kind of expected to see him going up against one of the uh, Pinnacle. Yeah. So, but maybe they're just, you know, planning on saving that for later on. Well, I mean, speaking of Super Over, we have the main event, Darby Allen versus Ethan Page in a coffin match. Um, I really enjoyed this entire match. I loved, I thought the coffin gimmick was a great choice for this feud. Um, it seems like this is probably the end game, though between these two but i think they did mm-hmm. a really good job of like building the story and, uh, and i think the reason that is is because they were willing to acknowledge the past history of two of their wrestlers you know that took place like you know outside of AEW, like on the independence something that like wwe would never be willing to do well, yeah, they don't exist outside our company. Exactly. Uh, exactly. They did it a little with, like, uh, Sammy and Kevin, but that was on NXT, so I almost don't count that. <laughs> yeah, I felt mm-hmm. like that was, like, forced upon them with, like, Hunter's, you know, booking. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, I thought this was a great match. Ethan Page is a, a, just a tremendous heel. I think he's the perfect foil for Darby. So it's almost kind of sad if this feud does end here, but I just don't see where else you go with it. At this point, I, I don't know if you do more Scorpio Sky versus Sting type stuff in the future, but I don't know. I, I, I could see this being the end. Yeah, I think you need to fucking treat Sting with like, you know, kid gloves. Uh-huh. I, <laughs> I don't want to hurt the old man. So because <laughs> um, I think he's actually if Arn is actually 62, I think he might be older than Arn. 
mm-hmm. which is crazy to think because that doesn't seem <laughs> right at all. That's why I was like, Arn is not 64. I got to look it up. I got to look it up because I believe Sting's like 64. So hmm. that's just crazy. And he's still pulling off the fucking Stinger Splash. He was involved tonight. Uh-huh. So, um, but no, great back and forth between these guys. The fucking spot where Darby takes the hook from the um, ring post and puts it in his fucking mouth. I was like, dude, what are you doing? You're going to poke a hole right <laughs> through his fucking cheek. <laughs> Just some really nice spots. You could tell that these mm. guys like have a history together, though, and worked, you know, a lot of matches because um, they were definitely, you know, pushing the envelope, you know, taking some liberties with each other. Um, which, you know, tends to happen when you do have like a working history yes. together. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I love the end spot too. Um, after the match is over, Darby going through the fucking coffin. I won't lie. At first I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You're just going to bounce off that coffin. <laughs> what is that going to do? <laughs> and then, duh, it's a gimmick fucking top. So it uh-huh. goes right through it. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad they actually used wood though. And not fucking, you know, cardboard like they did oh, with yes. Jericho uh-huh. spots. So. <laughs> that was a huge bonus. So they're learning from their mistakes yeah i actually thought they were going to actually bury uh ethan page especially since they did all that talk about like you know it's not over till you're in the ground but i was perfectly fine with them uh pulling off the coffin drop there yeah no it was a brutal fucking match man and i loved it you know i i like seeing just an old school blood feud you know and that's what this Mm -hmm. really was like i don't feel like we get that a lot in wwe um, so I like that this was just like built on like jealousy and, you know, th- these two guys past history. Um, so I-, I thought this was really well done and they were able to tell that story in the ring. Like Darby came in with a fucking weapon, like having that steel plate on his back mm-hmm. right off the bat. Like, so he didn't give a shit about the fucking, you know, the rules <laughs> or being the good guy here, you know, even though there were no rules. But like, you know, just being the good guy doing the right yeah. thing, you know, because that was a very heelish move. But at this point, it's a blood feud. So who gives a shit, right? You're just trying to maim, you know, your opponent. Uh, so, no, I, I, I give them all the credit in the world. I thought it was the perfect way to end the night. Um, usually the commercial breaks don't bother me and I can deal with the picture and picture stuff. But this match, I was kind of hoping they would pay that, like, you know, no commercial break, I don't, you know, through I don't, the entire match. I don't think it's up to them. So I don't I think know. that we have that kind, <laughs> that kind of control over a TNT. So, um, mm. but I do feel like they need to do a better job with pacing the match around the commercial breaks because it did feel like a lot of big spots were happening like during the commercial breaks and I still have a hard time paying attention during the picture in picture. Yeah. You know, so, and I know they don't want to cheat it, you know, and go into mm-hmm. like a fucking rest hold or something, you know, but you know, at the same time, let's not do fucking, you know, huge moves on the outside of the ring, you know, in this little tiny fucking, you know, picture in picture box <laughs> that I'm squinting to try to make out, you know, and I've got uh, a big, fucking, was a- I've got a big TV, so there's no reason. <laughs> But maybe I just need to get new glasses. So that was night one of Fighter Fest. Uh, next week, what do we have on the card so far, Christian? Well, we have that Britt Baker match. She's going up against Nyla Rose for the AEW Women's World Championship. We have John Moxley versus Lance Archer in a Texas death match. Hopefully Archer can can move forward Finally. and have some type of win. Yes. <laughs> and maybe the elite comes out and co- like costs Moxley the match. Maybe. That's a good idea. You know, it's a Texas death match. Anything goes. Yeah, so. exactly. So, but we'll see. Uh, we also have Chris Jericho versus Sean Spears in his first trials match. And Spear uh, can use his chair. That's yes. the stipulation. Mm. 
which is pretty scary. Uh, we also have Orange Cassidy versus The Blade in a singles match. Yeah, and I'm sure they're going to be announcing more matches mm-hmm. in like the next couple days. So, so that does it for uh, this week in wrestling. Uh, next week we'll be back talking maybe Money in the Bank, Christian. And Fighter Fest night two. <laughs> Double wrestling night, I guess. Uh, feels like a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. Maybe we'll just, you know, well, it depends on what kind of card WWE gives us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's forgettable, we'll just maybe just breeze through the results and, you know, talk night two of Fighter Fest. God, Money in the Bank used to make me like that. That used to be like one of the matches I looked forward to every year. And I don't know, man. I don't know what we're doing anymore. (laughs) Christian, I have no clue, man. No clue whatsoever. Well, that does it for this week. That's right. And as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, Damon, what are we talking about next week? Christian, we got a horror double feature with reviews for Escape Room Tournament of Champions and Fear Street 1666. We're also going to sprinkle in some action with Gunpowder Milkshake, and we're going to be, I guess, reviewing two wrestling shows, maybe? (laughs) We'll see how much time we have. Yeah. And and don't forget about the bad match. Yes, of course. All right. Well, that does it for this week. My name's Christian. And my name's Damon. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. This is a much less cool way to die.